You know, brewing beer isn't actually that complicated. Really. I bet I can explain it to you in 15 seconds. Ready? Okay, first you mash or steep together hot water and crushed grain in a thing called a mash tun. That gives you this sugar water that you call wort. Then you put the wort in a giant kettle, boil it, and add some hops. You cool that mixture down, throw in some yeast, and the yeast eats the sugar to make the carbonated alcoholic elixir that we call beer. Did you get all that? So the thing is, you know, don't actually ask me to do it. Home brewing seems really hard. And besides, there's lots of amazing people doing it for me. In 1987, the year I was born, there were 150 craft breweries in the U.S., but today there are well over 4,000. That crazy growth got us wondering, what's it like running a craft brewery? Is making beer the hard part, which is what I used to think, or the easy part? On today's show, we find out. We bring in three brewers from three very different breweries to tell us about it. I'm Kevin Dubsick, and this is How Your World Works. How does a craft brewery work edition? All right, so I've got three guests joining me in the studio now. The first is Matt Monahan of Other Half Brewing in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. Other Half's been open for about two years and represent kind of the midsize of today's brewer lineup. Matt, what was the goal when Other Half started? Uh, we were primarily in an IPA-styled uh, brewery. Um, we really felt like uh, there was a good opportunity for us to kind of brew the beers that we weren't seeing um, or only seeing coming from the West Coast, and we wanted to kind of bring a top-notch caliber so we've been focusing basically mainly on IPAs, and we're expanding into more of the farmhouse style um, of beers, similar to what Transmitters uh, does an awesome job at making. You're referring, of course, to Anthony Accardi of Transmitter Brewing in Queens. Anthony, you represent the smallest brewery in the room, and you guys actually have a very specific focus, right? Yeah, so we, we specialize in sort of Belgian Franco tradition, um, use that as inspiration for the beers we make. Uh, we're not trying to copy what the Europeans have done, but use them as a, a point of reference. So we do some mixed fermentation using various kinds of yeast and microflora. Um, and uh, most days it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so then my last guest is from Six Point Brewery, a rather large outfit in Red Hook, Brooklyn. But um, Keir Hamilton... You're actually kind of in sort of like a skunk works within Six Point, right? Yeah, well, myself at Six Point, uh, I'm kind of at the research and development facility. So it kind of goes back and forward at Six Point. I'm doing a lot more kind of uh, bacteria beers, as it were, some sour beers. So I'm really looking forward to doing that soon. Okay. And how long did you guys each, I'm guessing that you all probably dabbled at least in home brewing before you had a brewery to your name proper. How long did you guys brew beforehand and I mean, is that like a necessary requirement if you're gonna, if you're gonna like really go into it? For me, I homebrewed for probably two or three years before I started doing it professionally. I used to be a uh, a cook by trade, so I ended up over at Greenpoint washing kegs in the morning and and cooking at night. But that home brewing experience, you really should be doing it for a little bit. I mean, just to get a basic understanding of everything that's going on. It's kind of hard to just walk into any commercial facility, regardless of the size and kind of get up to speed quick enough without having some sort of a background that home brewing can help provide you. I mean, there's so much resource out there book wise and I mean, almost too much home brewing. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've had guys come into the brewery that looking for work and they honestly have overthought most of everything that they're doing with the beer. And, uh, but yeah, there's, it definitely helps for sure to have some experience. Um, I, I home brewed, uh, for 25 years. So a long time, uh, <laughs> 
uh, started in the early 90s, essentially, and uh, sort of the very edge of the internet. So information was really much harder to come by. It was all book-based learning. Yeah. Um, you know, I taught myself enough microbiology to sort of learn to culture yeasts from beers that I admired uh, early on. Yeah. And so that that sort of focus and philosophy has continued through to where I am today. I'm a little bit of the opposite. I have brewed one batch of homebrew in my life. That's all oh. I've done. Yeah. So I was working at the distillery beforehand. So I was doing kind of fermentations there uh, and some distilling. But I uh, I was over at Six Point as well, helping out washing kegs. I think that's where everyone starts is washing kegs. <laughs> you you ask anyone, yeah. you, or you're on a packaging line if you're at a bigger brewery. Yeah. 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 I, I made an Irish red ale and uh, it turned out okay. Uh, a little undercarbonated, not enough priming sugar, but. Uh, yeah, I just I it got still it. haunts you though. You remember? <laughs> I know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I took the sample in for the, the other guys at, at Six Point, and we had it at lunch, and you could see them kind of just kind of. Well done, Kier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think if uh, you can finish washing those cakes. <laughs> That's a tough crowd, but it's like an open mic night or something, right? Where you just got to go on stage and just get murdered. Oh, in front of other comics, and then yeah. and then you actually grow. We we get a lot of people rolling by with their uh, home brews. They'll drop them off. Um, some of the some of the more inventive ones, people will put their resume on the label oh, of yeah. their homebrew. So yeah. it's like, uh, yeah, it's, this is the common happened. thing. This oh, yeah. is you guys. Yeah, yeah, you I haven't that. seen that. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a couple times. So I actually, I definitely want to kind of get to this discussion of the different types of beers and sort of what makes it goes, what makes a pale ale. But uh, to start with, I just wanted to ask. Uh, so two things. What are the ingredients in beer, and what's the process like? And I'm just kind of curious also if you guys will all agree on this or if these are points of contention in any way. I mean, we're all making sugar water <laughs> at, at, you know, at, at the end of the day. So uh, there are lots of ways to make it, lots of ways to get there. Uh, but the process it's, itself is recognizable in all and every brewery you'd ever walk into. You know, if you walked in and tasted unfermented wort from Six Point, Transmitter, and other half, it would be mildly indistinguishable. Wait, so so what's wort? I mean, I, I want to get to the real basics. Like, what are what are the what are the parts here? Uh, wort is the is the sugar water that you've made after you've mashed. Uh, you make sweet wort, move it to the boil kettle. At that point, it's sugar water. Not what is this? Grain, is this from- grain, yeast, water, hops. That's it. That's the base, that's the base yeah. of beer. Okay. And the wort is the grain in the water? Yeah. The yeah. wort so is, the, is, the, is what's left over after you mix the water with the grains. And so where do you go from there? I mean, I guess it's just brewery dependent, recipe dependent. I mean... It is an infinite matrix of possibility. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you can start making changes from the mash at the point of the mash. You get... You know, there are 400 available grains in various colors and sugar content. So, like, before you start, you're, you're making a formula based on that. Um, and then once you get to the mash, you can do all sorts of different schedules to try to, uh, to, try to bring out different parts of, of the sugar content, whether you want something longer chain, dextrins. I mean, if you gave Kira us all the same about, recipe, the all same four ingredients, you would get three completely different beers. Yeah. <laughs> Even in the same proportions? Exact same proportions. We could make three completely, utterly different beers. Yeah. And then depending that. on what strain of yeast you're using, you could be all over the place, like yeah. half of ice and yeast from Germany, more banana, clove flavors. We could brew the exact same wort, same hops, boil for the same time, do ex- everything exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Then you add a different yeast strain, changes the beer completely. 
Like uh, we do New York City Beer Week, which actually Transmitter won. Uh, would you win Brewery of Best Brewery in New York City? Yeah, it's something, 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 something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so like we all get given the same ingredients, but then we can do whatever we want with it. Like we can add different salts to the water, you know, uh, change that. <clears throat> we can use whatever yeast we wanted to. Various formulas, various uh, ratios yeah. of ingredients. We, yeah. weren't, we weren't constrained by that. At what point do you diverge to making an IPA or a stout or, you know, some variety of lager? Right. So you could make, uh, you could arguably make a perfectly delicious lager from a Saison malt bill, which would be more or less a ton of Pilsner malt, light, uh, light, toasty uh, malt that we use as base. You could go through your whole process up through your boil kettle, depending on how you want to hop it. Uh, let's say you just stay the course, make the same beer, and then at fermentation, change it, do half a batch as Saison and half a batch with uh, lager yeast. You could potentially have two perfectly delicious beers that were uh, two style, one being a Pilsner or one being a Saison. And that's based on the yeast in this case? That would be based on, that would be at the yeast. What is the yeast actually doing in the brewing process? What does the yeast accomplish that it has this big of an impact on flavor? Uh, so we, you know, you have that sugar water. Now it's at some point in the boil, it's bittersweet sugar water because it's got hops in it. So the yeast is responsible for uh, metabolizing the sugar into CO2 and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's its game. That's what we all hope for. Um, <laughs> and uh, and along the way, depending on the yeast strain, then you're getting flavor components. You're getting esters and phenols that are building ancillary flavors in the fermented wort like so when you go out and you say like okay i need some (laughs) you probably don't say it this way when you say oh i need some yeast to make my beer um do you do you have some idea of what kind of flavors that yeast will produce or do you kind of just have to test with every different strain of yeast you come across and see which one's pleasing um i mean there are you know you're using more most of the time using known yeasts uh and so you have a general sense of its flavor profile but you're also doing iterative tests to make sure that you're getting what you want, uh, maybe temperature tests or uh, to tr- try to figure out where that yeast needs to sit for you in your system. Although um, we don't test anything. We don't even piloted a single batch of beer we've ever done. So it's like, it depends. It's totally style. It's a stylistic choice. Yeah. I mean, I think part of being a good brewery is having a familiarity with different yeasts and their profiles. Yeah. But, you know, kind of where they end up going, if you're not being super specific about it you can kind of just be excited about what may happen but you do have a general understanding of where it could go but mm-hmm. that's pretty awesome <laughs> yeah. we, we we pile out like nearly everything we do like small batches like that 20 gallons yeah and we'll move it up to 20 barrels and then if we're gonna you know put it in a, a canned uh, product it'll go up to like 450 barrels at our uh, bigger facility yeah um, but yeah we always have to start with a little pilot you guys have a lot yeah. more on the line, though. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the volume yeah, yeah. wise, like, <laughs> but it, you got to get that right. It, it, that's a humongous <laughs> oh, amount yeah. of investment. It, and it is very hard to scale up from even 20 barrels to 450. That's, you know, because the equipment's very different. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. So I actually wanted to ask how much you guys, each of your breweries, produce. Um, at the end of this year, we're, we're probably going to end up doing uh, just around 12,000 barrels. And we do that on a 15 barrel brew house. Um, eight 30 barrel fermenters, uh, stainless steel fermenters, a 15 barrel stainless fermenter. Um, and then online right now we have two 44 heck fooders. 
and one uh, one uh, thirty barrel fooder uh, as well. So that's where that's what we're kicking beer out with currently. What's a fooder do? A fooder is just a very large barrel, um, essentially. Okay. What about you guys? Uh, I'm on a we're on a six barrel brewery, so you know just under half what what uh, other half has. We have about ninety barrels of fermentation space for stainless, and uh, another. 30 barrels, uh, wine barrels, which are actually two volumes, uh, two barrel volumes. So that's another okay. 60 barrels of space. Um, the, uh, our beers tend to be quite slow mm-hmm. uh, to make. So we're sort of constrained by our fermentation space in terms of production. Uh, we're looking to do 1,000 barrels this year. Okay. Yeah, at a six point where I... Uh the facility I work at, we get about 2,500 barrels a year. The facility where I'm doing all the like small barrel age beers, um, yeah, we have a 20 barrel system. Where we're making about 2,500 barrels uh, per year. Ours take a little bit longer as well. So, what are the pieces of equipment that I would see in every one of your breweries that you have to have? I mean, you got to have a mill. You don't necessarily need a gris case. You could, we don't have one. We mill directly into the mash tun. Um, you got to have a brew house, at least two vessels. You know, one for the mash, one for the boil. If you're lucky, you have a whirlpool or another louder or something to help speed up the process. You need a heat exchanger and hosing. (laughs) You need a glycol compressor and some tanks and uh, something to fill kegs or bottle beer with. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you can run a brewery that way. And are there things that some of you have that others don't? They have a centrifuge. We got a centrifuge, um, <laughs> which was like our our first real big boy toy. Um, you know, we're we're all of us suffer from the same problem in New York City, and that's lack of square footage. So uh, you have to kind of squeeze out as much volume as you can out of the smallest amount of space. So the centrifuge is something we just kind of had to do, and that gives us another four to five half barrels out of every batch. So we have nine tanks. We turn two and a half times a month. It's a lot more beer and a lot more money for us to kind of keep growing. So it was, you know, it was four months for us for a return on investment. So it was a no-brainer. Uh, our system is pretty DIY. We have, um, you know, we have the same mash tun and boil kettle. Uh, we've built our uh, computer controller, so we have computer access to our uh, mash tun and fermentation farm, so we can see temps and change it. Uh, from outside the brewery. It's badass. Um, badass. I love it. It's so cool. <laughs> and uh, we, we actually built our own uh, uh, glycol unit, whereas most people go buy them for twenty or 25000 We We hand-built ours, uh, took apart an air conditioner, stuck it into a cooler. Um, we can crash a tank in 12 hours. This just is like, like a, most heat ex- a heat exchanging system? Uh, or? It, yeah, it, it, in, in essence, yeah. it is. Yeah. It doesn't help you warm anything up, but it'll help you cool something down. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, we bootstrapped it, um, and it's been successful. We literally pulled apart two 25,000K air conditioners and made glycol, uh, made a glycol (laughs) chiller. Do you have stuff that you use when you were home brewing that you've been able to to translate into the the brewery now? Uh, Nothing, nothing, not really. I mean, yeah. Uh, we've repurposed that for sure. But uh, earlier, Matt, you mentioned that space is an issue. What's it like setting up a brewery, and I guess you know also a tap room? Well, when we built the brewery, we didn't even—you weren't even allowed to have a tap room. I mean, you 
were allowed to like give small samples, um, you know, but uh, the the governor, they made a big push in the state of New York to kind of give more ways for breweries to make money um, to try to bring manufacturing back. And so, you know, you can't do that unless you sell beer on site. Um, and so when, when, when they changed the laws, having a tap room made, I mean, that's, it's a humongous percentage of your revenue, uh, compared to your distribution, at least for us, um, to have that many people be able to come through and buy directly from you at a price that's, you know, slightly, slightly less expensive than what you would expect a retailer to sell it for. Um, you know, we've been able to grow and expand because of that. And, and you get to see the people that, you know, are super excited about your beer because yeah. you, I mean, you really are face to face with them. I mean, every single employee that we have works a can release or a bottle release. I mean, we have to have everybody there. And so everybody gets to see that whole spectrum of, of, of beer fanatic that comes through. Um, and so, yeah, the tap room is a, is a big deal. We have a small, uh, sort of tap room, not even a tap room, like sample space and a couple picnic tables. And it, it's definitely fun to see the, sort of the regulars drop by you know we have people that you see every weekend or they come in and we don't have a draft system at the brewery so we only we do bottles and people can share a large uh, large format bottle champagne bottle and uh, there's a guy and a girl that come in every Sunday at two o'clock and they share a beer and then they move on through their day and it's really it's really cool I mean it's 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 fun um, you know and we're in this like 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 other half and and six point we're in weird parts close to close to neighborhoods but they tend to breweries tend to be in odd spots um where the rent is cheapest where the rent is cheapest <laughs> and the warehouses so, are uh, so we're literally under the Pulaski bridge and it's kind of a crazy scene like to be in the shadow of the bridge and yeah, uh, yeah. weird it's just a weird it kind of feels like where the stabbings take place, but um. <laughs> and you guys are way, you know, you're way out down in Red Hook, and yeah, there's and, no trains there, and we're yeah. we're stuck under the, you know, the BQE. There's a McDonald's across the street that's a methadone clinic, catty corner. There's a you know metal scrapyard and a fuel depot. It's disgusting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the cops are tackling people, you know, every other day out front, you know, for drug arrest. It's nuts. It's people throwing up outside the McDonald's and like, here's our brewery, you know, like come see us, like. Yeah. It's awesome, I promise. Come inside, quick. <laughs> hurry up. Get hurry in up. here, quick, 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 quick. <laughs> when you scale up, even just from like a twenty barrel pilot, it's it's actually tough. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we got we were we were scared. I mean, we were thinking about putting we've we've got a design drawn up for a sixty barrel tank to fit. We're limited by fourteen foot ceilings, mm -hmm. but we're just really really hesitant to pull the trigger on getting this thing built because we're not super confident in the cone geometry. And so, you know, it, it affects fermentation and how everything moves within the tank. Um, and so, you know, we're worried about less efficient fermentation because of the tank geometry. And so, you know, we're, we'd almost rather not spend the money on something like that, even yeah. though it would save square footage. But, you know, we just don't want to buy something that we're not going to get the performance out of that we want. Yeah. If you're doing something like fabricating... Uh, equipment for your facility. I mean, is there some place if you're if you're not sure about the cone geometry and how it's going to affect fermentation? Because there's somebody you can ask, or do you kind of just have to, you know, be I mean, cavalier it, with it? It's it's you can ask them. You can find somebody that maybe has that tank. Um, you know, like for instance, that 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 drawing was done by um, uh, a buddy of ours that's starting a brewery um, 
out in Bushwick and, you know, we could say, how, how are your fermentations going? But he doesn't use the same salt addition. You know, he'd treat his water the same way. It may not be the same yeast, you know, and I'm not sure how, what kind of gravity the beer was to start. And so it, it's so recipe specific uh, in terms of what you're doing that, you know, you can't, it's hard to really, you know, ask somebody, is this okay? Does this work? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like we're, we know what works on proper cone geometry where at our brewery. And so to, ve- to deviate from that is kind of kind of scary. And even asking around if someone had that tank, I don't think it would really matter. Right, because someone with that tank is going to make it work in, in the way they need it to, right? But yeah. trying to match, trying to make sure that... What you, you have, do works what with you this. Do. Is that beer going to taste the same out of that 30 barrel as it does out of that 60 barrel? Probably not. Yeah. Because of the geometry. Mm-hmm. So how much of the time, how much of the time do you guys just spend like scared? Seems like, it sounds like there are just so many different ways that the flavor can deviate. I don't know. I'm, I'm scared all the time, but not just because of beer. <laughs> I, I have to double check, make sure I've turned the glycol on. Like when I you know, I knock out a beer and it's in the fermenter, and you know I need it to ferment at 68 degrees. I'm like, yeah. All right, I go turn it on. Did I turn it on though? And I go back and check. Yeah, I did. And then just as I'm about to leave, eh, I'll go and yeah, it's on. You know, because if you if you don't turn it on and you don't keep it at that temperature. It'll just shoot through the roof, 78, 80 degrees overnight, and done. Yeah. I used to walk around with a timer. I always have, like, when, when I was cooking the same thing, whenever I was making anything, like, I was the timer guy. Because I was like, man, I'm going to definitely forget about something and mess this whole thing up. And so, like, there's constantly an alarm going off in my pocket, and, you know. Like, right. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask, what's, what's the worst thing that's gone wrong for each of you guys? Oh, yeah, it's not the worst, but it's pretty bad. Like if you have to dump beer um, from barrel aging, uh, you know, because uh, beer will kind of evaporate a bit out of the top of a barrel and the staves will dry out and air will get in there, oxygen will get in there, and it can create a acetic acid, ethyl acetate, and it's like nail polish remover. Mm-hmm. And you don't want that in your beer. Really? Um, <laughs> yep, nope, nope. Uh, Actually, a little bit is good. Yeah, A yeah. little bit tastes like pear. Yeah, abs- like yeah. pear specifically. Like pear. Yeah, mm-hmm. huh. some people think stuff tastes like pear, and some people don't. Right? <laughs> That's all too. Like, yeah. No, when I when I was doing, uh, I was ready to blend this uh, beer, and I, you know, got all the barrels out, and I took samples of them all, left the glasses on top of them, and I went through them all, and like fifty percent, I was like, Nah, I gotta go down the drain. I was like, maybe I can sneak one in, and I tried to blend some together, and then see what it tasted like, just to get the volume out of it. Because uh, the beer had spent like six, seven months in a barrel. And oh. It had been waiting for a while. No, nah, couldn't do it. Certainly the worst thing that happens happened to us is that we have to dump a beer, but only after we've bottled it. And bottles are expensive, so we actually open the bottle and recycle the bottle. Um, that's, that's ugly. <laughs> one of the other awful things that, that's happened to us is, so when you go to dry hop a beer, which means it's done fermenting, uh, you haven't crashed it or brought it down to 32 degrees for either filtering or packaging but you're adding hops directly into the tank uh and on some of the higher gravity beers with more residual sugar they can tend to hold in you know if if we've if we've capped the blow off they can hold in its own co2 uh in solution Mm -hmm. so my partner sam was at the top of a a ladder up about 14 feet high dumping (laughs) you know we put a extreme amount of hops in there he's putting like 60 80 pounds of hops in the top of this beer and he could just feel the pressure coming up out of the tank and the wind starts to come up out of the four inch port. And he's trying like crazy to get the cap back on because this thing's going to start foaming <laughs> over. 
it's like a giant beer bomb and he couldn't <laughs> he couldn't get the cap back on and this thing it just went it just shot out and probably lost like seven eight barrels of beer i mean it just blasted all over the ceiling it sprayed all over the tops of all the tanks I mean, the whole place smelled like hops. I mean, we had the we had the pressure washer out for a couple of days, just trying to wash everything down. Yeah. And uh, you know, we lost we lost a third of the third of the batch. Just erupted like a fountain out of the top of the tank. Yeah, one of our guys, Marcus, the exact same thing happened. When you just start adding all the hops, you're creating tons of nucleation points, and the CO two just <laughs> wants to come out. And it started coming out, and he just put both his hands over the the things. What do I do? And I'm like. You're going to get wet in a minute, but we're going to be all right. (laughs) When you decide that you're ready to make a new beer, what's the first thing uh, that starts that? And then where does it go? I mean, we travel a lot to meet other brewers, so we'll drink things that they make um, that are always, you know, influential. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll taste something that we've had and we're like, oh, that's really awesome. We'd love to try and make something like that. Um... But you do have an idea of the basic grain bills for things like mm-hmm. that. We kind of try to position ourselves to have all the equipment we need to do any style of beer we want to do. We, we kind of make the equipment available first and then go from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, the creation of a beer or, or creation of anything starts with the deconstruction of what you hope to do, you know, through, uh, through looking at what's, what, it, what is it you're aiming for, you know, whether it's something specifically you've tasted uh a few years uh two years ago i was at a rental house over the summer um we just gotten there it was friday afternoon uh walked in there was a miller high life in the fridge the fridge hadn't been opened in a week the fridge was like 35 degrees it was perfect i wanted a beer i drank a miller high life for the first time in probably 10 years or something and it was freaking delicious um (laughs) It was great. Uh, it had like this sort of corny sweetness and the carbonation was delicious. And so I walked away from that and thought, I don't want to make Miller High Life, but I want to, but there's, I'm tasting corn in it and I like that. And I want to make a beer that reflects some of that flavor. So, you know, came back and designed uh, a mixed fermentation beer. So it's funky and earthy and not at all clean and just a different beer but use 30% corn in it so that it has that note. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, that's how you make a beer, you know, like, Mm -hmm. uh, like, (laughs) just like that, just like that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think when I'm trying to come up with uh, new beer ideas, they all stem from like, as Matt said, like traveling around and meeting other brewers, meet going to other breweries and like tasting what they're up to. Um, Because everybody's always innovating, coming up with new stuff. And it's always good to go to uh, another brewery's tap room. Um, Rather than, you know, their packaged products are great because that's why they're packaged. They're putting them on the market. But if you go to the tap room, they might have some things that, like, yeah, we tried this. Did, you know, we're, we're still working on it. But, you know, they'll sell it, you know, and you can taste it. And uh, it just, it, you know, um, puts little ideas in your head. Oh, I kind of like this flavor. I like that idea. These hops work really good together because, you know, when people make IPs, they usually give you a summary of the hops. You know, they're not going to tell you when they put them all in. Right. But, uh and you can just get some great ideas. But one thing I do like to do is, and he said he just had a really cold uh, high life and he loved it. Uh, like on Sundays when I go to watch football, I'll drink a high life because 
I want to concentrate on the game. I don't want to be like <laughs> sticking my nose in a glass every two minutes and kind of, yeah. hmm, what's this? Hmm, hmm. No, I just. I hear your accent. <laughs> you talking about soccer or football? Uh, the, the throw ball. The throw ball. The throw ball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my, my, my next last question is, or my actual last question is, what's like the, what's the thing you're most excited about right now? Whether it's like a beer you're making or a beer you just tasted from anywhere, what's, what are you most excited about in brewing right now? I'm gonna be. I'm kind of selfish. We we've been trying to expand for a while, and so with this facility we're putting in next door is I'm really, really excited about because we're putting 16 fooders over there, you know, a few hundred wine barrels, and 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 putting in a, a much larger tap room so that people can get a better idea of what we're all trying to to brew. Yeah, I think I'm excited about uh, just the expansion of breweries in New York City. We have a whole bunch more opening up. Um, it's going to be great, and hopefully more bars will take heed of this and start carrying New York City beers. Because I love to go out and I love to drink transmitter beers. I love to drink other half beers, um, and but some of them you just don't find them because they want to stalk somebody from the West Coast or some of the Midwest. And these beers are great, and it's great to get them into the city. Yeah, I do like going to bars, and then you know I'll see one of my beers that I made on the menu, and uh, you know I'll buy it and see like okay because it's been two or three weeks since I made it, it's packaged, then it's, you know, let's see what it, how it's holding up. And then someone else beside you uh, that you don't know will buy it and you kind of like eavesdrop and see how they feel about it. <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's been fun to, I, I had another business in New York and starting, starting a brewery uh, two years ago has been fascinating and amazing chance to sort of enter another world. Uh, you know what I what I used to do, a few hundred people cared about, and now with beer, uh, a few million people care about it on some level, and so that's an interesting change. So I, I love every day. I mean, you know, we're gonna bottle tomorrow. I love bottling. Like it's, it's fun to finish at the end of a day and feel like you've made something beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, so that's enough. You know, making stuff is awesome. Making stuff is awesome. By the way, before we wrap up, I just want to say a quick word or two about alcohol and the British Empire. So my favorite beers are IPAs. You heard Matt Monahan talk about those. IPA stands for India Pale Ale. If you've had an IPA or four, you know their distinguishing feature is an overwhelming hoppy bitterness. And you've maybe also wondered what that has to do with India. Well, I'll tell you. It turns out that hops have preservative qualities. And back in the day when the British were sending beer to their favorite colony, India, they realized that adding extra hops would help it survive the journey. But that also gave them a hoppier, bitter beer. Now, that wasn't the only drink that they invented by having to sail all over the place. Famously, the British Navy received a daily ration of rum. It was a way to get water uh, without spoiling it. Water can go bad on a ship, put a little alcohol in, and it lasts a little bit longer. Well, in 1740, Admiral Edward Vernon ordered his sailors to drink their rum diluted by water. This was a way to fight drunkenness because some sailors were saving up their entire rations and drinking them all at once. The Admiral suggested that the best seaman might be allowed to sweeten the drinks with lime juice and a little bit of sugar. He wore clothes made of grog rum, and the boys called him Old Grog. And nowadays, you can find grog on the menu at almost any reputable tiki bar. A more sour drink with a sweeter name, the Gimlet, came about kind of the same way. Citrus cured scurvy. Sugar helped preserve the citrus, and gin made it more fun. Then, of course, there's the gin and tonic, and that takes us back to India. In India, and some of the other places the British found themselves at the height of their colonial powers, they kept dying of malaria. 
In the 1800s, they started using quinine powder to treat malaria or even to prevent it. But it tasted terrible, so again, they turned to sugar and they added a little bit of soda water and ended up with tonic water. Then they decided once more, something that I've started to do, let's just add gin. And that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Eddie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And make sure to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And by the way, if you want to read more about brewing, check out our website, popularmechanics.com podcast. While you're there, you can also subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Deepsick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>